Welcome to the Movie Geeks United Best of the Decade show. This is going to be a great, illuminating conversation between three of the biggest movie geeks you can imagine. Myself, your host, Jamie Duvall, my co-host, Adam Long. Hello, hello, everybody. And our good buddy, Tony Macklin. But Jamie, who's the geek? I'm, I'm a critic. <laughs> I, okay. I don't know. What, what, what's this geek stuff? He's, there's only one esteemed uh, person on the panel tonight, and it is our, our good friend, Tony Macklin. You can read his criticism at TonyMacklin.net. Okay, I want to talk to you guys about the movies before we get into our top 10 of the decade, the movies that just missed the cut. So, Tony, what falls right outside of your top 10? Well, what, what is really important to me is the films that nobody saw that – I thought was so important and actually were memorable experiences. The one that came to mind, most to mind, is Born to be Blue with Ethan Hawke as the jazz trumpeter Chet Baker. And nobody saw the film. Well, not nobody. A few people did, and I pushed them to see it, and they all felt it was a worthy experience. But I think that each of us have, in, in our experience, a couple of films or a film that we wish had had more success because it deserved more success. And Born to be Blue is definitely my pick of the decade of the films that I am most sorry to not see succeed. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely. And and I, I was so overwhelmed by Ethan Hawke's performance in that and he's a performer that i think has really come to the forefront this past decade and that movie is is well worth seeing and and uh, you know you think that you know the film uh because biopics follow a pattern and certainly chet baker's life followed a similar pattern to most biopics that you're used to seeing musical biopics but this one came from such a a place of uh great affection for his art and a, a very honest look at who he was and what he had to deal with. Well, you make, you make a great point because to me, the most of the better best films that are made are personal films. Mm -hmm. You can see the person feels something strongly about the, 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 the experience, the character and Hawk had a real love of Chet Baker and wanted to help, humanize him on screen and because of this personal connection i'm sure he was very happy he made it i'm sure he was very frustrated that it didn't succeed with the general public but it was to me a great personal film yeah yeah adam how about you uh yeah i have three that fell just right outside the top 10 that I return have returned to multiple times, and they affected me pretty deeply when I saw them. And um, on the bottom of those three would be Seeking a Friend for the End of the World, the 2012 film with Steve Carroll and Kira Knightley as two lost souls who find each other as the world is coming to an end. And I found this movie to be – it's directed by Lorraine Scarfia, who made waves this year with Hustlers, and she's getting some a lot of praise for that. But – this this was her directorial debut, and uh, the film came and went within two weeks, and I don't know that anybody saw it except myself, but I was incredibly moved, and uh, it's just a beautifully made film. It's, it's, it's a, I guess, ostensibly a, a romantic comedy, but there's a lot of 
of moving stuff in there. And I, I just really, I've returned to it several times and I've shared it with, with several people. And I don't think I've ever shared it with anybody who didn't like it. So uh, anyway, Tower is the, uh, is another one. It's a documentary from 2016 about the shootings that took place in 1966 at the University of Texas. And it's done with animation and they take the actual people who were involved and they animate them as they're telling their stories. And it's just an incredibly moving experience. If you have not seen this film and not enough people did, uh, it's just uh, packs an emotional wallop, really does. And the other one would be Brad Status from 2017 this is directed by mike white and uh, brad status has been stiller in it and for a movie with ben stiller you would think it would have gotten more uh, attention but it didn't it just kind of fell through the cracks and it's the story of a, of a, a father who's taking his son around basically shopping for colleges and he starts to question the the choices he's made in life and uh, it there's he even questions his own uh, whether he's jealous of his son and his or you know a, a, a little of that as well so it's just uh, i don't know it's it's wistful it's it's funny at times but also very wistful and uh, i was mm-hmm. moved to tears during the last 15 minutes of it actually and uh, so anyway brad's status i've talked about it i know too many times on the show probably but i, I really love this film and yeah, so, I want well, to uh, for just for a minute. I wanted to talk about the tower that Adam has suggested because I probably wouldn't have seen it if he hadn't if I didn't see him recommend it. And it it was an extraordinary, startling mo- motion picture, and it actually shows that sometimes we do have relevance, reviewers and critics, that we do hear things in word of mouth. And so thanks, thanks, Adam. I appreciate. Uh, your your love of this movie well i appreciate you saying that it makes me feel like something i did was as far as trying to get the word out actually made a difference so that that makes me feel great okay <laughs> we've been recording recording for about five minutes now and we've already got two movies definitely under the radar gems that you guys have to see out there if you haven't already born mm-hmm. to be blue and tower mm-hmm. uh two incredibly powerful films the two that fall outside of my top 10 blue is the warmest color which uh, really uh, just shook me when I saw it. I've only seen it once Um, and it was so uh, raw and intimate. And I I felt very truthful about coming into your own sexually and then your partner being at a different place. I mean, there's a lot going on in the movie and I understand that since it's award-winning run at Cannes that year, that it's been faced with a lot of controversy about the director's approach to the actresses. And somehow that should negate the power of the film in the culture warriors' minds. But much like Last Tango in Paris, I felt that it was—it felt like a very honest depiction of of sex and how it defines us and how we define ourselves through it. Um, so I thought it was a very val- valuable movie. And then uh, my other one is, you know, a crowd pleaser. But I'm telling you, this is a movie, anytime it's on cable, I stop and I watch it and it makes me happy. <clears throat> you know, I can't defend it from an intellectual standpoint, but I will say The Intern is one of the happiest movies I've seen in the past decade. De Niro and Anne Hathaway. It just fills me with joy and the, the warm fuzzies. And I don't dismiss those. Uh, you know, I, I'm not uh, just because I appreciate the intellectual uh, stimulus from the movies in my top 10 doesn't mean I can't 
appreciate something like The Intern. I think it's a very good movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely has its moments. I saw it. Uh, I've only seen it once was the one time when it came out, but yeah, I, it, it, it definitely has some of those, those warm fuzzy moments, as you say. So yeah, sure. You have, you have to love it. Like I do, Adam, come on, <laughs> get on board. I enjoyed it, Jamie, but I think like my wife, for some reason or not, or another, can't stand in Hathaway. <laughs> and, and, and so, uh, but I, I, I thought, thought she was very, uh, likable and the, the picture worked as a as a work of entertainment also uh, maybe this is the point where we make i can make the point that's what's so what is so important to all of us and all our listeners is to get on the wavelength of the film my wife judy couldn't get on the wavelength of the intern at all you jamie understood it as it was meant to understood it as it meant to be understood and loved it, and I enjoyed it, and and so that's three different reactions, and, and Adam can give his as well. But nobody's wrong; it's just valid. But to give these films a chance is you have to make the leap. You have to be willing to understand it as it is meant to be understood, even if that's not your normal or average uh, access to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And honestly, my top 10 consists of a lot of under the radar or, or very much loftier uh, attempts at expressing something. But just like you say every year, because we, we do the best of the year often with you, Tony, and you say you always try to include one movie that you think an audience, a wide audience, would have no reason not to love. Um, and that, that's the intern for me, this, this decade list. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. I'm a big fan of blue is the warmest color too. Let me go on record as saying that. So, there you go. <laughs> yes, when we were when we were in uh, LA together, we reenacted many of the scenes. Okay, <laughs> I don't know why I just said that. Uh, okay, so Tony, let's begin with your top ten. What is your number ten? My number ten, uh, Jamie, is Hell or High Water, and it was written by Taylor Sheridan. And Taylor Sheridan reminds me of maybe my favorite director of the last two decades, uh, Tom McCarthy, in that he's an actor, he's a writer, he's a producer, and he's a director. And Sheridan has become all of those. Sheridan, to, at, at the present time, has produced a television show that is really remarkable called Yellowstone with Kevin Costner. It's not always enjoyable. There's a lot of pain and anguish and, and grit. And, and, uh, but you, if you make the leap, you probably get something out of it. And, and so this picture with um, um, Chris Pine and Jeff Bridges and Ben Foster um, seemed to be a personal, have a personal quality and also was really effective. Yeah, it's a great movie. Uh, great characters, a very lived-in feel. I mean, that you could tell that the, the, the Sheridan knows this environment and the people who inhabit it uh, very well. Uh, Adam, your number yes. ten, sir. My number ten is Darren Aronofsky's 2010 film Black Swan. 
And I've been a fan of Darren, Darren Aronofsky's work since he burst onto the scene with Pi in the late 90s. And of the trajectory of his career, I followed with great relish, shall I say. And I was a big fan of Requiem for a Dream. I know it's not the kind of film that you can heartily recommend to just anybody. Uh, it's definitely not a feel-good film. But I felt like Black Swan, uh, after he took a little bit of a detour there with a couple of films in the mid 2000s. And he, he came back with Black Swan, which I felt like was a natural progression from Requiem for a Dream. And it's the story of a tortured ballerina played by Natalie Portman, who won an Oscar in that performance. Uh, and she's, she's tortured by, she's pushing herself to the, to the edge, to the limit and losing her grip on sanity. And it's just terrifically shot, terrifically scored, terrifically acted, a uh, very intense film. Again, not for not for not for any not for not for everybody. Not not a feel good film, uh, but certainly stayed with me. I've revisited it several times since its uh, initial release, and it still packs a wallop for me. And uh, if you are on the Darren Aronofsky, uh, if you're on his wavelength, I think you'll definitely appreciate it. So, Black Swan is my number ten. Yeah, not not a feel good film. It's not the Intern. I tried to get on his wavelength and it killed me. <laughs> he, uh, for me, for me, Aronofsky, and I'm just put this footnote, this personal footnote. Mm -hmm. He is too pretentious for me. I, I just, I just find him, I just find him uh, contrivance. He takes a little bit too far for me. Yeah. I, this, this is an Aronofsky film that I actually enjoyed. And I think it's because it, from a personal standpoint, I understand the world of dancers and theater actors and technicians. I went to art school and I spent a lot of time after school, after graduation and, and those kinds of similar worlds. So this is taken to another level, but I, I like the way the movie builds and it, it, it has a great momentum and an energy to it that I, that, energizes me as a viewer but i've only seen it once uh and i i suppose i'll go back to it again but uh yeah it was it was on my top 10 for that year as well so good job adam number 10 black swan for adam my number 10 you know it's similar um because it's another film about an artist and i think we're going to be talking about several films about artists during the show my number 10 is inside lewin davis the coen brothers film and it's it's the portrait of a of a failed artist, but done in a very unique way because I think this artist fails because he doesn't understand he has he is so interior he is so stuck inside of himself and his own desires and needs that he fails to see what's happening in the world around him, and what makes a truly great artist is the ability to observe and engage in that world much like Dylan did. And this guy will never be Dylan and uh, because he, 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 he has that fatal flaw about him. And that's driven home at the end uh, when Dylan actually pops up and not the real Dylan, but uh, a Dylan uh, stand-in kind of pops up and makes, makes an appearance. And uh, it's a completely kind of foreign phenomenon for him. Uh, so, and it's not only beautiful to look at, but just a very unique character and uh the the challenges he faces is unique i mean this is an this is an artist who isn't who will never be an artist <laughs> it's a movie <laughs> about someone who will never be an artist 
so I, I thought it was just a, kind of a great twist on that that kind of subject. Jamie, Jamie, didn't it didn't it uh, introduce Oscar Isaac? It did, and he's phenomenal in it. Yeah, he's had a career in this in this decade that's going yeah up very much so. And and you think about. I think about the way it looks too. And I remember that Haskell Wexler got into a fight with David Carradine years ago during a Q and a after a bound for glory screening and Carradine was criticizing Haskell Wexler's work in the movie saying, it looks like it was shot uh, behind a glass of milk through a glass of milk. And I think that inside Lewin Davis looks like that. It looks like it was shot behind a glass of milk, <clears throat> but for some reason, it's so evocative of that. Well, I that think it was shot behind a, a glass of whiskey rather than milk. Yeah, well, it's got a very cloudy look to it, which I which I like a lot. But inside Lewin Davis, it's you know I don't think people that didn't like it, I don't think they they knew what it was trying to say. Uh, but it's worth another look. If if my description helps you at all to appreciate it in a new way, I'd be grateful. Okay, uh, Tony, number nine. Number nine. I I was saying how important Tom McCarthy was to me because of all he he did, and in this decade he had an outstanding movie and finally won an Oscar for it. Um, he's also I I can recommend. Um, the loudest voice on television with with Russell Crowe playing Roger Ailes. It's much better than Bombshells, by the way. It was an HBO six-part special. And uh, Tom McCarthy wrote the first part of it, and it, it was very much a part of it. He also directed Spotlight, and that won the Oscar as Best Picture of the Year. And why it seems to me important to the decade is how it dealt with the social issue and how it brought that social issue into mass attention. I mean, the issue was in mass attention, but it kind of clarified it. Um, and McCarthy is, again, very personal because he is an actor himself and he is a writer himself. And I think Spotlight worked probably as well as a popular uh, film about a social issue can. Mm -hmm. And it was heralded as a, a great tribute to the power of responsible journalism as well, yes. Yes. which I think is important. I, I, I like workplace movies. And above all things, what, what I appreciate most about Spotlight is it really gave you a sense of what it was like to work uh, what these, their working process. Uh, and I, I like movies like that. So I, I'm, I'm on board the spotlight train. How about you, Adam? I am. I am. It's a, it's a very well-made film. Didn't make my top 10, but, uh, if we were doing top 20, it would certainly be in that top 20. It is a very, very well-made film about an important subject. Yeah. So Adam, what's your number nine? My number nine is Mad Max Fury Road. How about that? So <laughs> this was uh, a return to the Mad Max franchise after uh, a couple of decades layoff, and it came back with a uh, with quite a bang. 
I think, with Tom Hardy taking over for the Mad Max role, of course. And but uh, the movie was more about the Charlize Theron character, I think, than than Max, which was kind of something yeah. we didn't expect. But this uh, this was the film that we went that we wish uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome had been. <laughs> but uh, he was kind of, I, I guess, uh, trying to make up for the for that debacle. We don't need another hero, Adam. Adam's not alone because I looked at somebody's list and I can't remember who it was. And he had it as best film of the decade. It's loved. I got to admit, I watched it once. It was at a screening and the projection was so bad. It was so Mm. blurry. And so I feel like I really missed out. Uh, I haven't returned to it, but I've been, I, I want to, I intend to. But that that first impression was just ruined for me, mm-hmm. and that's terrible. It's not the film's fault. Yeah, it's just you know, you know. And again, if you're a fan of the Mad Max films, which I am, uh, you know, so I, I, I guess I have some some baggage, as they say. But I just felt like it was a really good uh, return to the series with, and, and in this day and age when we see so much digital trickery, it was amazing to see. Yeah. These, these practical stunts were just amazing. Some of the things that George Miller as the director was able to, to, to get accomplished. And I, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I am a fan of yeah, Mad the, Max Fury Road. The staging is amazing. I mean, <laughs> the way he stages, stages action is incredible. Okay. Mad Max Fury Road. My number nine is another movie about an artist. <laughs> there's there's like four or five movies on my list about artists it's just how it shook out i guess this one was from 2018 i believe really under the radar i mean nobody's seen this movie it's vox lux natalie portman and what i appreciate about movies and you know i've been putting together the series of the films of 1970 and across the board the movies that left the deepest impression were the ones that took genre and kind of turned the conventions on their head. And I think very few movies do that successfully nowadays. This one did for me because Fox Lux, it's a, it's a, it involves the school shooting. Uh, this girl witnesses a school shooting. She writes a song about it. It becomes a hit song. She becomes a pop star because of it. She grows, she has her own child and yet, you know, she's a screwed up person. Um, so it, it, it plays in that wheelhouse, but I think what it really does is it, it explores how art responds to tragedy and how people uh, view the tragedy through the prism of that art. And is it healing or is it um, distancing? You know, and I think you see that in the lead character, how she has not dealt with the trauma that she experienced that many years ago. And the movie the movie feels like it's saying the same thing about all of us. Like we, we identify with these tragedies. We kind of put them in their little box and we have a song about it that, that contextualizes it and we feel better about it. And I don't, and I don't think that it's a it's a, I don't think it's a, uh, uh, a mystery why she sings, why her music is trance, the, uh, you know, electro trance music. So yeah, Fox Lux, uh, my number nine. Okay. Uh, okay, Tony, Tony, your your number eight. Well, my number nine was a um, social issue film. My number eight, in a sense, is two. Certainly, this, uh, 
African-American cinema was important in this decade from 12 Years a Slave to Moonlight to Selma to Black Panther and on and on. But my eighth is a film that mix, mixes genres. Um, it's horror, satire, character, storytelling, of racism, um, and it was Jordan Peele's, I think it was the best debut, most money-making international of all time, Get Out. Um, and I think that the, the black friends that I have l- didn't much like Black Panther for some reason. They loved Get Out. I'm, I'm making a general statement. But Get Out really has it's it's a personal film, and it's 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 one man's great vision. Mm. Yeah, it was immensely popular, and he got a great career out of it. Uh, and of course, the, he's still in the discussion with us from this past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to he's going to be an interesting director. Yeah. Mm. But you yeah. two had some doubts about it. Oh, I liked it quite a bit, actually. I, I did. I was quite taken with it, and I, I, I was impressed with how he took ideas from varied sources of you know different horror films and horror tropes, and was able to kind of mesh them together. It was interesting how he did that, and uh, I, and, and you know, technically he was a, he's it was a sound debut as well. So yeah, I, uh, I, I was impressed quite a bit. Also, Adam and Jamie, I've said that irony has been dead in this decade, that politics tried to kill irony, and yet in this film, irony lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good for Peel. Yeah. Okay, number eight, Get Out for Tony. Number eight for you, Adam. Well, this is another film that nobody saw, but I have <laughs> – beaten the drum for this one quite a bit and i'll continue to do so uh it's from a filmmaker who made his his um made his name in the late 90s mid to late 90s todd salons and it's wiener dog mm. from 2016 mm. uh good lord yeah <laughs> i uh I have seen this film three times at this point. And again, this is a filmmaker that if you don't get on his wavelength, you are going to despise this film. I'm going to warn you with peace and love. I am warning you. But uh, uh, I will say if uh, the thing that bothered me the most, and, and a quick, I'll give a summation of the film. It's basically the, uh, a dog, the wiener dog of the film's title. And it goes from, the film follows it as it goes from owner to owner. And so it's a series of vignettes, I guess. Uh, Greta Gerwig is in one of them. Uh, Ellen Burstyn is in another. There's a, one with Danny DeVito. But the film is very subversive, uh, funny, and that dark humor sort of way that Todd Salons does things. The problem I had with the response to this film is that a lot of the people who were just big Todd Salons fans, all these critics who were giving him such high praise in the late 90s with happiness and welcome to the dollhouse. Uh, to me, this is as good as those films. And those same people who loved those were 
kind of trashing this film, and I, and I just didn't get it. I, I I felt like this film was more polished than those earlier efforts. He's he's technically a better director than he than he was back then, and uh, I, I I don't know. I just uh, I I like it liked it when I first saw it a lot and I continue to do so. So, uh, and I know I'm in the minority, but that's fine. I'll take the heat. Wiener dog is my number eight. Wiener dog. I bet no one out there could have predicted that that title would come up. That's, that's good. Todd Solon's. I, I, that's a movie of his that I have not seen. Is, is that one with Jennifer Jason Lee too? Is she in that? I do believe she's in that one. Yes, I think so. I I can't remember a hundred percent, but yeah, uh, I think so. I know she's oh. in. She's she's in one of one of those that he's made. One of the last couple that he made, but I, I'm not sure if that's it or not. But yeah. it's been several. Well, years, that would be but, yeah. that would be very very comfortable to have Greta Gerwig and Jennifer Jason Lee in a movie together, right? Because <laughs> yes, of their connect, connection to a uh, to Noah. Okay. <clears throat> Wiener dog. Wow. Okay. Yep. My number eight is, uh, another movie about an artist, <laughs> uh, phantom thread. Uh, I, I thought that this was a very unique take on a traditional love story. You expect it to be a kind of a merchant ivory movie because it's about this classic, uh, clothing designer, a very exacting person. Um, and it has all the visual trappings of a merchant ivory, but this comes from Paul Thomas Anderson. So there will be some threat along the way, like a phantom threat, I think is what the movie should have been called. Uh, but I, I enjoyed the, its take on the love story. It takes all the trappings of a typical romantic relationship and it puts them in play in this movie. I think that when we enter certain relationships, um, we want to make that person into our image. And so the fact that he is a costume designer, he, cre he creates image is a, is a great profession for that lead character to play into this love story. And we, when they disappoint us, uh, we kind of thrill in the, the slow destruction of the relationship. And then we expect them to put us back together again. And in this movie, that concept is taken to the extreme. She nearly, they have a process that they go through by the end of the movie where she nearly kills him and then nurses him back to health. Uh, I thought it was a very uh, provocative movie under the cloak of this very uh, stately uh, character study. Um, so I, I, I thought it was a very, very, very good movie. And, and I appreciated this movie more than, something like inherent vice. Um, I do love um, there will be blood, but there's something very special about the intimacy of this movie, phantom thread. So that is my number eight. Well, that will definitely come back up on the list for me. I'll just say that a little teaser there, but yes, uh, I echo everything you say about that film. It is, uh, it is quite the pleasing. That's all you have to do. Yeah, you just stop there. You just say, Jimmy, I echo everything you say. I echo everything. Come <laughs> on. Yes, next. Okay. All right. Tony, you're number seven. Well, um, there, are, there aren't many great directors on my list. There's no Spielberg, no Scorsese. Um, this one, one of the major directors directed my seventh film. But it wouldn't be on my list if it weren't for the credit sequence at the end. Um, it, it, 
he uses Ennio Morricone, who I love. He uses the funeral from a 1965 spaghetti western, The Return of Ringo, over the credits of American Sniper. And I, this was a film that a lot of people didn't, didn't relate to or react to. Um, it was kind of cool. I thought Bradley probably was as good as he's ever been. And this was the decade of Bradley Cooper. I mean, when you look, think about what the different films that he was in recently, uh, Star is Born, and before that, Silver Linings play, Playbook, and film after film after film. But um, I thought that, that, that American Sniper also made a statement about war that I could understand and, and felt was worth making. So it's Clint Eastwood's direction uh, with, with uh, Bradley Cooper, my number seven American sniper. And I do not share the uh, affinity for Eastwood that you do, but I, I, do, I do love him. Uh, I love his work. But I did feel like American Sniper felt like a re-energizing of him as as a filmmaker, and it was inc- it was an incredibly successful movie. But the movie, the movie felt more alive than a lot of his previous movies did for me. But you you said you love him, um, and I don't really love him. I mean, I I somehow I I may have taught the first course on Clint Eastwood's work in the in the in the world in 1995 at the University of Dayton. And I kind of got connected to Eastwood. I find him interesting. And I find his films, there's more to them. Mm-hmm. He learned how to do levels from from Siegel, who directed mm-hmm. before him and directed him. And Dirty Harry is one that, that I think is really, really a strikingly effective film on, on, on several levels. But his vision and mine are not his, his personal vision and mine are not the same. Although he does say that he likes to surprise people, and I and he also is much better read than people think he is. But um, uh, I think he's very. I think he's very intelligent. You know the problem I have with some of the films that he directs, and I understand that if you're a director, direct. Um, you know, don't wait for the perfect project to come through because you'll be waiting forever. But I do think that he is so good a director that he can basically direct in his sleep. And the, the feeling I get is that in some of these movies, he has. <laughs> well, I think in some of these movies, especially the one on the train that had actual people in it, mm-hmm. that probably he didn't shoot most of it. I mean, we, uh, he, he was there. There was one scene in the train when they had the the terrorists the activity with the terrorist that I think he really had his touch, but the rest of the film, I think it probably was directed by somebody. Yeah. Richard Jewell, which just came out this year, I think does in a sense, it it was worth making. And I think he made it in a, in a very effective way. But Adam, but Adam, do you, do you, do you agree that, I mean, American sniper feels like, a, a totally energized Eastwood. Oh yeah. Like he's energized by that material. Yeah. Yeah. 
you you can tell his heart. Right. Well, that's it, all I want. I just I just yeah. want you to agree with me, Adam. <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I, I think the fact that he's telling a real story about actual person, mm-hmm. he made a connection. He made a personal connection. And he probably took a little – there's a little bit more of Clint in that film yeah. than some of the others that he's made. I think that's probably true. Mm-hmm. Adam, what's your number seven? I mean, uh, how are you going to top Wiener Dog? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the big question, right? Okay, well, this – I'll tease this one a little bit. It's from a director who basically came to prominence in the 1970s, so we're going back to the 70s again. And at this point, it's the last film he's directed as far as a narrative film. It's Killer Joe, directed by William Friedkin. Wow. Wow. Which yeah, I uh, quite a fan of this film. Quite a fan of this film. I have to admit, I saw it in a theater on a on a Saturday night when it came out, and it was. Uh, I love. Uh, there's something about me. I guess it's the rebel in me who enjoys watching these people who are out, obviously out on a Saturday night date night or whatever, and <laughs> and then <laughs> seeing a Matthew McConaughey film and then seeing this film. I don't know. That experience just stayed with me. I've revisited it since then. So it wasn't a fluke. I have enjoyed it. It's uh, it's Matthew McConaughey. Uh, this was when he was, you talk about getting re-energized. I think this was the, the beginning of the yeah. Matthew McConaughey Renaissance when he came, came back around after having a couple of years there in the desert and it's you know of course it's Sahara. That, that was the name of that period Sahara. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he literally, literally spent time in the desert yeah. he did he did but uh you know this this is amazing amazing work for a guy who was at that point approaching 80 years old i think Friedkin was and this yeah. film it, it feels like it was made by somebody in their 30s maybe even late 20s and it's just in your face sure. it's uh you know it's I, I don't know it's it's um you know and of course it's you know what we love what, what what we loved what we loved about freakin in his heyday and we love freakin anyway he spent hours and hours here with us on the show and mm-hmm. man no one is more entertaining to listen to oh my you god could just yeah. you could hear him do commentary about the sweater he bought that morning and it would be entertaining <laughs> but uh we loved we loved the fact that he was a provocateur mm-hmm. that that a lot of those great movies that he made back in the heyday, you couldn't be on the fence about them, really. Uh, they they provoked something out of you, and I think Killer Joe shows that he still had has that. And oh, yeah. as with Bug, yes, um, you know he he still got that energy. Totally agree, Good. and I I just I'm a big fan of it. So what can I say? Killer Joe number seven. Okay, my number seven is a movie that stayed with me since I first watched it in 2011. It is We Need to Talk About Kevin. Uh, Again, another school shooting-related movie. But really, it's about the elusive, mysterious connection between parent and child, mother and child. The fact that this this person that goes off on a shooting rampage as an older teen at a high school he comes from me, but is he me? Is it, it, am I in him? Is he in me? And the movie is a wash in red, whether it's red paint covering her house or her cowering in the supermarket from hecklers 
that see her in public saying, your son did this. How dare, how dare you go out in public cowering in the supermarket behind a whole wall of red cans or even uh, wallowing in, I guess the tomato. I don't know what that setting is at the very first scene. Uh, it's like a tomato fight between thousands of people in a crowd and they're just wallowing in this red. Uh, it almost looks like afterbirth. Um, it's that blood connection and how responsible are you for your child? And there's, there's, there's when you can't bond with your child, but it comes from me. Uh, there's a lot of elusiveness in the movie. It doesn't feel the need to point a finger and identify it. You know, it's just there. You can feel it. It's in the approach that, uh, it's an endlessly fascinating movie for me. I feel like it's not a great place to live in, but I feel like the movie I'm, I'm absorbed by it. You know, Jamie, I, I would suggest you also read the novel, the woman who wrote the novel. I, after seeing the movie, I was, I was struck hard by it. And the, the, the novel is a little different, but it, 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 it's real equality. And I, I think we all probably agree that what is so important to so many of these films is the writing. It's mm. not just the direction or the, or the, the acting, but give them something to say, give them something that, that, that gives them a character and the character evolves and that there are dimensions and that there is, is a range. And in this film, I think this was an extreme, extremely well, written screenplay that came from the novel the 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 stereotypical way to do this movie is the bad seed this this is the artistic way of doing it the the way of exploring it from a different a different mindset uh it gives depth to the the bad seed really is what it does that whole concept and i love that about it um number seven great film thank you Thank you, Adam. It really is. Your number six, your number six choice, Tony. I'm I'm gonna let you guys talk about it because I'm not sure why I put it on my list. Christopher Nolan probably was the most important director of this decade. And I have The Dark Knight Rises as my number six film. Hmm. So I think it was significant. Tell me right or wrong and what you think about Nolan. Maybe nobody can make a case for it. <laughs> no, no, no. It, you know, I think I think the movie is depending upon your viewpoint. It's either undeserving of its praise or it's a victim of its praise. I think it's so much pop culture now that people forget that initial response that they had to it. And what mm-hmm. what he did in that movie, I feel, is open up that kind of genre into uh, an epic crime film. Uh, so when I think of the Dark Knight Rises, I think a lot about Heat, honestly, mm-hmm. because I, I think it I think it expands that genre in a way that is very similar to Heat. I'll tell you how it. I suddenly, John Adam, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm cutting you off, but no. I'm, I uh, I uh, suddenly realized what what it was about that film. You were t- saying it changes the the genre. Well, it did what Joker did this year. It humanizes it. Mm. It brings a human quality, and it's really quality. The, the, the acting is terrific, and it, 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 it's a wonderful 
Batman story that is a human experience. That's that's my bottom line. Now, was yeah. the Dark Knight? What year was that? Twenty twelve. That was twelve, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. I uh, are we talking about the Dark Knight or the Dark Knight Rises? The Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, the Rises. Oh, the Dark Knight Rises. Well, that's a that's a whole different discussion. I'm sorry, I was talking about the Dark Knight. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, I love the Dark Knight. The, uh, the 2000, that's two thousand eight. How do you yeah. spell it? N-I-G-H-T? You mean that one? N-I-G-H-T? Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I was thinking no. of the wrong Dark Knight. You, go ahead, Adam. The comments no. on the Dark Knight Rises. Well, I just had something quick to add about it. Um, I think it's ha- it, it didn't quite... the it, it worked until the end of the film for me. And I had some real problems towards the end because uh, Bane, the villain, of course, played by Tom Hardy, was uh, he was just a really nasty, you know, nasty villain. And they built him up for nearly two hours. And you want to see Batman, you want to, you're expecting to see this great uh, showdown between Batman and Bane. And then Nolan has so many balls that he's juggling in the air. And he has Bane dispatched basically off screen by Anne Hathaway's <laughs> character. And I just felt like emotionally that wasn't what I wanted. And I know it's just a personal thing for me, but I had a real issue with that. And up until that point, I was totally with it. So I, I think, and there are some great set pieces in that film. That opening set piece, the uh, the hijacking on the plane is incredibly staged. So let me say that there are some great moments in that film, but I just, I think he just bit off a little bit more than he could chew, and he just didn't satisfactorily figure figure out how to uh, wrap up all the loose ends towards the end. And that that but was if he didn't chew, at least uh, Tom Hardy chewed the scenery. That is true, and he's great. He's great. I cannot argue with that. There, like I said, there's some stuff to admire about the film. I just, for me personally, I felt like it was a little flawed, especially in the third act. And that's just me. So that's my take on it. Okay. Would, you, would either of you suggest a, a better Nolan film for the de- decade? For this decade? Mm. I'm not crazy about Nolan. I got to be I'm honest. I'm not either. I have to admit, Inception, I was totally underwhelmed by. I know that's not an, uh, the I popular opinion. But, uh, yeah, Inception, I was underwhelmed by Interstellar. I felt like uh, he borrowed way too many elements from 2001 there. Um, and we mm. know he's a fan of that. Uh, and then there was Dunkirk, which, again, I was totally underwhelmed by that, too. So I I don't know. Uh, I felt like he was, for me, I was responding to him more strongly in the previous decade than in this decade because I really – uh, I, I like Insomnia. I, I admire that quite a bit. The Prestige, uh, Dark Knight, Batman Begins, all of those I'm on board with. And then basically everything this decade, I just couldn't, I couldn't really connect. I'm, I'm fascinated by both of you, <laughs> not particularly uh, supporting Nolan because I don't either. And uh, you could <laughs> tell by the way I offered that film that it was kind of, okay, this belongs and I couldn't defend find it. Another <laughs> and so I, I, I but I, I think it's an effective film. I don't say that. I think but, it's an effective film too. And I'm sure. sure your, your wife didn't like it because Anne Hathaway's in it, but uh, <laughs> I, I just, I, di- I didn't see a point for it after he had reached the heights of the dark night. 
Uh, I just felt uh, like yeah. this is a trilogy. We got to we got to finish it and hope for the best. Yeah. With me and Nolan, I don't know. He's he's constantly compared to Kubrick, but for me, and and people compare him to Kubrick because he feels very analytical, and people accuse him of being cold and that kind of thing. But he he's not nearly as imag imaginative as Kubrick is. I don't believe. And actually, he's respond in a movie like Interstellar. He responds to that cold and aloof criticism by going in the opposite direction and the emotionality of something like interstellar is just it, 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 not genuine to me but it's see see overbearing. stanley stanley would never have never never stanley thinks about human beings as vacuous and empty and uh, that yeah i mean that's he, he, that, he that, had he had us dead to rights <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what is it? My number six is that, or, or are we going to you, Adam? I think it's my Adam's turn. number six. Yeah. Uh, okay, go ahead. And my number six again is another filmmaker who came to prominence in the seventies. This is Paul Schrader's uh, first Reformed from last year, twenty eighteen, which I responded very strongly to and have revisited and still respond quite strongly to it as well. It's of course you were talking about Ethan Hawke earlier, and this is another stellar Ethan Hawke performance as mm -hmm. a as a small town preacher who is a pastor who's um, having a crisis of faith. And uh, this was just a terrific return to form for Paul Schrader. I know it's a film I'm going to re revisit over as the years go by. There's a lot to chew on there. Uh, it's just, um, it just reminded me of the Paul Schrader that we, that we miss from all those years Anatomy, ago. It's, it's such a personal film for Schrader. It's mm -hmm. such a personal film mm -hmm. coming from yeah. his back. Yes, it is. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, such a religion. And, and I think that he, Ethan Hawke is uh, he he he's working in the wrong decade. But you know, because he seems to be attracted to material that was popular back in the seventies. Mm -hmm. But he is doing the best the best he can to bring back that kind of material. And I think this is a prime example of it. And Paul Paul Schrader, obviously, a good friend of the show. Uh, he's been on a couple of times that we love Paul Schrader. And I, I was so pleased that this movie actually hit. I mean, it resounded. People talked about it. Yeah. Um, which was refreshing. And it's a very good movie. And, and it's very uh, done in a very austere way. I mean, even the, the aspect ratio, it's very boxed in. And you feel that the tension throughout it because of that. Yes. Um, so it's very deliberate, very skillful movie, I think. Yeah, I'm quite the fan. Okay. So your number six is First Reformed. Tony's is The Dark Knight Rises. And mine is a movie that just came out. Dun, dun, dun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Too soon. Too, Too soon. soon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it four times. Oh, and It just came out in the past month. And I'm speaking, of course, of The Irishman. I was uh, not overwhelmed by it when I first saw it because I did. I saw it in a theater, and it, because it has a limited theatrical run, it was relegated to one of those classic movie houses, and the sound is always terrible for movies in those places. Those places are really built more for performance, so I didn't feel as intimate with the movie as I wanted to. But later that week, it came on Netflix, and I watched it, and everything about it worked better for me because the film is it is much more of an intimate journey than something like Goodfellas. <clears throat> and yet it's done on an epic scale. 
um, you know, I, I read a lot of comments after because more people are seeing this movie than probably any Scorsese movie just because it's access on Netflix. Mm-hmm. So I see a lot of idiotic comments out there about it. One of them said, you know, he could have gotten rid of this and this and this, uh, which, yeah, I'm sure you could get rid of certain scenes, but um, you'd miss like a, a strand of DNA that is essential to the whole. You need to feel like you live through those lifetimes to get the full effect of the movie. And one criticism was he could have taken out that world war, uh, uh, world war one stuff in the movie world war two stuff because uh, it's not necessary. But I feel that that scene contained a line of dialogue that uh, is the theme of the whole movie. It's when De Niro says, I could, I couldn't understand why they went through and dug their own graves as like, as if they were going to get out of it. And this movie, if it's about anything, it's about how none of us will get out of it. There's always an inevitability uh, to all of our lives. None more so than those, uh, the criminals that are featured in the film. I mean, that's why he, he labels and titles above each supporting player's head. This person was shot to death in 1980. This person, you know, yeah. uh, there's, uh, it's kind of like the, what is the word? The impermanence of things i think is what the irishman is about and well, for that reason for that reason experience because those people were the people he knew i mean they weren't they weren't his actual when, when i saw the film i was i was conf, not confused by it but 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 stymied by it and i went back and and heard in a 90 minute interview i did with uh, with marty when he would at the time of Alice doesn't live here anymore. And he was saying to me how, how important being personal was. And I I could find him being personal in his last film silence, which again, nobody's seen, but I couldn't find it in this film. And then I started, as I said before, trying to see it as he wanted it to be understood. And, And he makes a major point about, the character that's played by De Niro having no remorse. Mm-hmm. Those people feel no remorse. And I think he's talking about people he knew and maybe about in his career, he feels no remorse, but he and De Niro and me feel regret. Now De Niro's character is very limited in his sense of regret. It's just his daughter. Yeah. Otherwise, he feels no regret. And I think that M- Marty's own life is probably divided. I hope this is not insulting him or being this, uh, a bridge too far. Um, that in his, he doesn't feel remorse over his career. He feels, I mean, he feels, and 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 he feels regret when he gets personal. So, well, I think it's, I think it's the, I think it's a film of an older person. Uh, it, and that's why, it, you know, people say what's new about it. I said, well, it's, it's about aging. I mean, show me many gangster movies that are about aging. Um, and, you know, I think that um, the De Niro character is an interesting one because obviously he's a sociopath, but at the end he's experiencing something that he doesn't know how to equate in his mind 
He's unfamiliar with it. It it it, it is a feeling of deep remorse, and he even lets it go in front of that priest when oh, he no, says, I, "I don't think he does show I, remorse." Do I, I think I, I don't. Like, I think I'm he. Sorry. I think he has remorse, and he oh, doesn't know how to. And he doesn't know how to process it because it's a new feeling for him. So when he's sitting there with the priest, and he just says like a out of the blue comment, he says. What kind of man would make a phone call like that? Meaning the call he made to Hoffa's wife. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know how to process it. What do I feel about this? It's an interesting character in that it, it, that character has a limited psychology. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's the lead the character lead character in a three and a half hour movie. It's you unusual. see the character differently than I do. I don't see him evolve. And I, I see him. I don't see him evolve either. He doesn't know what he's the feeling. Same level. And he doesn't really care that he had doesn't show remorse and you think he is remorseful no so, i don't i don't I, I yeah i think that that's gnawing at him and i don't think he i don't think he knows what it is i don't i don't think he knows how to handle that okay. what what to do with it or else he wouldn't have made that comment to the priest uh that's my feeling about it anyway and so the performances top to bottom are wonderful. I just the deliciousness of David Ferry being in a character, uh, being a character in a film that also features Joe Pesci. Uh, <laughs> just mm, yes. that alone is kind of is very ironic. But uh, anyway, so Irishman is my number six. Uh, Adam, you never talked about the Irishman unless it's on your list. What are your feelings about it? <laughs> I, you know, I liked it. I admired it. Uh, I think I'm going to have to revisit it because I think I'm having the, and I've only seen it the one time. Uh, and you got to see it four times. That well, <laughs> every one of my uh, the, the people whose opinions I value the most, and you are among them, and there's several others. Uh, they've all said the same thing: you've got to see this thing more than once. Because I had a, I, I admired it a lot. I liked it. The performances were great. There's just some great moments, but uh, again, I, I felt a little tired and drained when it was over with, and uh, maybe mm. it was just a physical. I saw it late at night, so that might have had something to do with it, and uh, I think I need to see it again with a, a fresh mindset uh, to give it a fair assessment, but I, uh, I, I did admire it, and I did like it. Uh, a lot. There's a lot that I do like about it. I just think leave that the, a second leave the door cracked. I mean, just leaving the door cracked at the end, just you know, yeah. Ah. And no movie has like no Scorsese movie has affected me. Uh, very few of them have affected me on on an emotional level like that, uh, where it just pains me to think about it. Did you oh, see yeah. Silence? Yeah. I did see Silence. Yeah, that has an emotional level. I think. I think so too, but this is some, I'm not a Jesuit priest. Yes. So this, this was really like <laughs> getting older and, 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 and looking back and not wanting it to end quite yet. I, I'm mm -hmm. getting closer to that feeling. One myself. of the problems with, yes, uh, I think a film has to percolate, percolate. Yeah. While. yeah. And picking a film from this year, I, I, I just couldn't do it unless something was, as it was for you, really, really important. This is one of two movies from this past year on my list. Okay. All right. I, I, <laughs> no, I, I just think one changes his mind. Yeah. He's writing a review, first of all. And then when he gets away from it and there's some time, there's some history, there's some some. And it, it's not the same as when you first saw it. it right. Goes through, I, uh, a process. 
I, I, my immediate feeling is that this is a movie that will grow in, in me as the years go by. And believe me, there are a lot of movies. We just mentioned Kubrick, all of Kubrick's films do that to me 20 years after I first see them. Um, so I, I expect to get a lot more out of the Irishman in future viewings. I'm done with it for now. I've watched it enough. <laughs> okay. So, uh, all right. Who are we on? Tony, your number, what are we up to? Five? Five. I won't, I won't say much because uh, I'm, um, I pick fifth, Jamie's tenth pick, uh, Inside Llewellyn Davis. I don't think you even mentioned the Cone Brothers, did you? No. Yeah, I. I it seems to me they that um, they really understand the character and what you said about the character. And I thought I thought you said perfectly about that film. Um, I read it a little higher than you, but we both were. We both have the Cone Brothers with Isaac. Uh, Oscar Isaacs, um, inside Llewellyn Davis on our list. Yeah. And it's a, you know, I don't remember people bragging about the movie when it first came out, but it's showing up on a lot of top 10 lists now. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, where were you guys yeah. back in the day? <laughs> uh, okay. Adam, number five for you. Oh, well, uh, my number five is John Carney's Sing Street from 2016. Oh, uh, what a surprising list you have, Adam. (laughs) Well, I I, I like to pride myself in having variety, if nothing else. Oh, it's a very, very good list. (laughs) Well, thank you. Uh, Yeah, Sing Street is just a a film that, again, multiple times I've seen it and just continue to love it more and more every time it just captures that mid eighties feel. If you grew up during that time and you were coming of age as I was, I was a teenager back in those times. And uh, you know, it's essentially the story of a, of a boy coming up in the mid eighties who decides to form a rock band to win over the girl that, that he loves. And that's the kind of thing that, that most of us did when we were, or, or wanted to do if we didn't do it when we were uh, at that age. And, uh, the film just it, it just brims with so much uh, love and attention to detail for that period and the amazing mm. thing is the recreations of the videos when they they make their own music videos out in the streets and it's just perfect uh perfect uh, uh, mimicking i guess you would say of the mtv style that was so prevalent back in those days in the early days, you know, before uh, they were pumping in millions of dollars to make these music videos. And of course now they don't, they don't uh, broadcast videos at all, but there was a, you know, there were the very crudely made early ones. And then they, there were the mega budgeted ones. And then they they went back to kind of where it's at now is kind of the way it was in the beginning. But anyway, they, they, they mimic that just amazingly well. And the movie has so much heart and the original songs are great, and uh, the pop cultural references are just spot on. And there's a there's a lot of debating about such things as Duran Duran and things like that. <laughs> that uh, I, I get a lot of. Uh, uh, I did uh, not see. I did not see Sing Street, Street, but he is a very special talent. Is it John Carney? What's his name? John Carney. That's correct. Yes. 
Yeah, because I really loved the movie he did before that. Whatever that movie with Mark Ruffalo and and Kira Knightley. What was that one called? uh, Gosh, I'm drawing a blank on it. I loved that one. I did too, but not as much as this one. This one, he even topped that one with this one. And I think this one will be in your wheelhouse because knowing you as well as I do, I think if you saw this film, it would just be catnip to you. I really do. Um, But yeah, I'm I'm now to yeah, you really need to. It's just a beautiful. Look at you. you go from you go, you go from Wiener Dog to to Sing Street. <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 outstanding. Yes. So, uh, what are we up to? Are we up to my number five? I You're think number we are. five. Yes. This this is one of the. I, I love a, a film that has a strong sense of place, and no film this past decade felt more lived in for me than the Florida Project. I think it's a remarkable observational movie uh, that is ultimately very heartbreaking that the, the only crescendo in the movie is that conclusion where she races with her friend onto the Disney world property. And that was more tragic than anything in the movie to me, even though it's presented as a, as a moment of exuberance because it's a, I think it's a fantasy. I think Disney this fantasy world is right across the street and this girl will never get there. Um, and that was heartbreaking to me. And I think that the performances are incredible. Defoe is a great expressive actor, but in this movie, you don't feel him reaching for effect. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't snarl. He doesn't have rotted teeth. You know, it feels very effortless from him and so refreshing uh, that performance in that movie. So the Florida Project uh, is a, a very, very special movie to me. And if you haven't seen it, you definitely need to. Oh, it's a beautiful movie. I love that movie. It's just right outside my top 10 as well. And uh, just I, it was just so hard to fit them all in. And this was one that I wanted. And I just couldn't I couldn't find a place for it with all these others. But yeah, I, I echo all your sentiments there. It's just I've, I've revisited that one as well. It's it's just it's great. It's just great. And if you if you want to know about the power of movies, I live 45 minutes from Orlando. Uh, I know that motel. I've passed it many times. I recognized it immediately when I saw it on screen and never took the time to consider the lives that occupied that motel. And uh, this is a fictional movie, I'm sure, that those exact people don't live there right now. But it makes you consider that. That's the power of cinema, you know, mm-hmm. if anything is to consider the lives that you pass every day and you don't really give yourself a moment to consider them. Yeah. Um, okay. Totally agree. Tony, 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 number four. Number four. Um, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer Lawrence were kind of the couple, the actor and actress of the last decade with director uh, Russell, um, they made American Hustle and uh, Joy, and my next choice, my fourth, is Silver Linings Playbook. Maybe it's because, partly because I'm from Philadelphia, but uh, I think it really was a uh, monumental film in that it took three people, De Niro was in two of the films, but it took three people that were on the upward, the upward 
stance throughout the decade that they were really, really effective. That Bradley Cooper, I think, probably was the actor of the decade. Uh, and Jennifer Lawrence's career started with Winner's Bone or her career in terms of recognition at the very beginning of the decade in 2010. Um, to me, this was a, a delightful film, a, a, a personal film, a credible film, a convincing film, and you know, num it's number four for me. Yeah, it's a very good movie. <clears throat> and Bradley Cooper is awfully, the performances are great in it. What I love about the movie, the, the, the conclusion of the movie, they, they're celebrating rising to mediocrity <laughs> and but there's such joy it's such a release of the audience they're so joyful for them yeah uh, yeah he's got a, he's got a very special way with characters and actors david russell does you've got to understand something that in philadelphia mediocrity is the best <laughs> well there you go <laughs> It's yeah, true, it's I true think to the region. Yeah, I I think of the uh, the David O. Russell Renaissance, uh, shall we say, because there was about a six year period after I Heart Huckabee's where he was seldom heard from. But I think of of that Renaissance. I think that's the best of those films that he made in the early part of this decade. Uh, it's my favorite, anyway, of those. Yeah, uh, and, and he he's seems just, to, he's disappeared again. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, he seems to have fallen completely off the radar once again. So it's amazing how that is cyclical. Do you, do you I know what uh, Bradley Cooper is going to make next? Uh, no. Oh, he was talking about Leonard Bernstein. Yeah, yeah, he's going to play Bernstein. Oh, yeah. that would be interesting. It's supposed to be out in 2020. And I think he's mm -hmm. got the rights to the music because yeah. there was a there was a competing project with Jake Gyllenhaal playing Bernstein, and they couldn't get the rights to the music. Mm -hmm. So he might as well not make it. I mean, why would you make that? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like the Jimi Hendrix, the uh, Hendrix movie they made a couple of years ago where they couldn't get the music. So, <laughs> but you know what? He was so good. The outcast guy, what's his name? He was so good as Hendrix. I uh, can't remember who, who did play that part. Uh, I can't remember his name, but that's a good performance. Okay, Adam, yeah. number four. Okay, well, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to do a twofer here uh, from the same director. So I guess you could kind of sort of give me a little, maybe give me a little break here. But I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't choose between these two films from Quentin Tarantino. One is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, of course, from this year. Uh, it gets better and better every time I revisit it. And the other one is Django Good. Unchained, which I just absolutely uh, adored as well. And both of those, I could not wait till they came out on video. I went right back to the theater and saw both of them immediately after seeing them. And when that happens, that's usually the sign of something that's going to stay with me. And I, I just, I love both of those films. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Django Unchained uh, are just, um, okay. you know. We're, we're going to save some time here, Adam. Okay. We're going to save some time because number four for me is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm, uh, okay. So I... No movie uh, of the past decade has, has given me more unf unfiltered delight than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You know, people complain about his uh, obsession with feet, which are on display a lot in the film. But the whole movie is one big fetish. The whole movie is fetishized. Yes. And either, 
either you appreciate the things that that he obviously obsesses over or you don't and i love la i love that period of hollywood history uh i love the characters that populated it i love the fantasy that he wanted to conclude that decade of the 60s with um, and I think the fact that he ends it on a fantastical note makes it feel even more tragic than if he had shown history as it actually occurred, mm-hmm. because this is what it could have been. This is once upon a time. It's that fairy tale slash tragedy note that concludes the movie that really stays with you. Unlike Tarantino movies, which are very poppy, you know, they exhilarate you and you're excited about them when you talk about them. But this one kind of haunts, it lingers in a haunting way, uh, which is unusual for me with a Tarantino movie. I didn't yeah. put uh, it on my best 10 uh, of the decade, but I had it on the top of my film list, as you may have seen, uh, um, Jamie. I had yeah. it, uh, my top film of, the, of this year. Um, he destroys history. And he yeah. was a little cruel to hippies. Uh, hippies are now the new Nazis for him. Um, but uh, I, I think the ending of that, the last 40 minutes of that are just exhilarating. And uh, they probably mm. shouldn't be. But he has, he's a master at, in the last 40 minutes of that movie. Very much so. And there's a momentum to the end of it because I mean, mm-hmm. the, the midsection really takes its time. And then the last chapter, it goes because you know what you're expecting. You know, it comes down to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he just, it feels like he just flies through it. Uh, the the yeah. creativity is what appealed to me as much as anything. I mean, he is, he is a creative master. And it's a movie that I feel I kind of fetishize because I'm one of those guys that love seeing Brad Pitt drive down Hollywood Boulevard with the top down playing Bob Seger. You know, it's, it's one of those sensations. Give me more of that. There's shots in that movie. I think, no, 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 you didn't hold on it long enough. I want to live in that moment a little bit more. <laughs> it's, it's one of those movies for me. It's just delightful. Okay. Yeah. It's, it is a great film and gets better every time. And I think that it will continue to do so as the years go on. Um, that's my that take on pre- it. Does that pretentious, precocious little girl get better with time? <laughs> well, I didn't I wish say it wasn't included. That <laughs> I think I, I think that I think that scene serves a real dramatic purpose. How so? Uh, well, because it's. It's the unjaded, and I honestly, I think that I think that the cutting between DiCaprio feeling uh, gloomy about his place in the industry, cut against Sharon Tate in the theater, nothing but giddiness about her place in the industry. I mean, Sharon Tate, she she's she's about to have her photo taken by the box office person, and the box office girl says, "Could you stand by the poster so people know who you are." DiCaprio's character would take terrible offense to that. Sharon Tate's like, sure. You know, it's, it's that change in that change in attitude. And I think that conversation with a girl really illuminates for DiCaprio that you're not concerning yourself with the right thing. You know, what do you, what do you love? Do you love status or do you love the work? Here's a little girl that has 40 times the, 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 the concentration and appreciation for her craft that you do. You're doing it wrong. And I think that but really she's a phony. She's a phony. 
I don't think she is a phony. Okay. I think for for a girl of that age, she is coming at it as honestly as she as she can, okay. as you could expect. Um, but I know that Paul Schrader had the same problem with the movie. You know that the it it felt similarly precocious and precious to him that character in that right. scene. So you know it's understandable. I know where you're coming from on it. Um, okay, who's uh, uh, Tony number three? If the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was terrific and, and compelling and exhilarating, my film probably had the best ending of the of the decade. That everybody I talked to and everybody I saw when they left the theater were saying, "Wow, what a what a what an experience." Guess what it was, guys? Ooh, I have no idea. Okay. Whiplash. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. You remember the ending of that? I mean, of the ending. And, and J.K. Simmons won a, won a supporting Oscar, which was wonderful accomplishment. But the end of that film, it was just it, – it was just – Jamie was talking about – talked about how films – move you and, and inspire you. And the end of that film, you just left as he had done that, that drum riff. Yeah. It was a really elevated experience. And that's my third pick. Yeah. And the movie is, is edited. Uh, the movie is made rhythmically. I mean, the movie itself feels so musical, every cut and it's a musicality that, ironically, I felt missing from La La Land. <laughs> That's it's just true. a proper That's musical. But yeah, it's yeah, an exceptional it's, movie. It really is. Oh, I totally agree. Yeah, that, again, couldn't fit them all in. But that would, uh, if we're doing top 20, certainly there. Uh, so my number three is one from this year. And uh, I'll just go ahead and say it. It's my favorite film of 2019. And it's number three on this list, Parasite, Bong Joon-ho's South Korean thriller, uh, satire. I guess you could call it all of that. It's kind of a, it's a, it's a thriller. It's a comedy. It's a satire on the haves and the have nots and uh, so many things. And boy, this, when I saw this film a couple of months ago for the first time, it was just one of those experiences that reminded me why I love the movie so much because you, you reach a certain point with this film and you have no idea where it's going. You just have no idea. And you just sit back and you say, okay, I'm on a ride and I don't know where this ride is going to take me, but I'm going to let this filmmaker take me wherever he's going to go. And I'm just going to sit back and just let him go. And that's what it does. It takes you on this uh, amazing thrill ride where you just, there are surprises and twists at every turn. Uh, you never know exactly how it's all going to end up and uh, great performances. Like I said, there's a lot of subversive humor in there. Uh, and it's basically about a, a, a poor South Korean family who finds a way to, to in, insert themselves into the lives of a rich family, a well-to-do family. Uh, and it all kind of comes back to bite them in the ass, I guess you would say, before it's over with. <laughs> what, did you what did you think about its, uh, its, its social class, um, the idea about the, the different social classes? 
Uh, I thought that the points he was trying to make are pretty spot on, I think. Uh, you know, the, the, the poor family in the film is basically just trying to eke out a living. I mean, the movie opens with them literally uh, walking around in their uh, filthy apartment with their phone in the air, trying to get a Wi-Fi signal that they can leech onto from the neighbors. That's how the film opens. So it kind of sets you up uh, to, to, to show you the squalor that these people are, are living, these dire circumstances that they're living under. And then you contrast that with the, the wealthy family who seems to be, uh, they kind of take it for granted. They live in this bubble, a protected bubble that they just kind of take for granted and they don't really realize uh, how good they have it. Uh, that's my did take on it. it to, to, did you relate it to modern society today? I did. Yes, I did. I thought, I thought his, uh, his take on that was spot on with what's going on. I, I feel like there is a, an ever widening gap, not to get too political or anything, but there's an ever widening gap between the haves and the have nots. And it just gets worse and worse. There's the middle class is, is, uh, constantly shrinking. It's, it's, it has it has been for quite some time, and uh, I think we're getting to a point where there's the middle class is almost getting to a point where it's non-existent, uh, and, and it seems to be getting worse. And this movie tried to make that point. I think it did it very uh, spot on without bludgeoning the viewer over the head. And it, and like I said, it's it there is a lot of humor in there, so there's a lot of uh, sly humor and subversiveness that will you know it, it's. It's, it's not sermonizing, so it knows how to, to do this and do it well. But uh, Bong Joon-ho, he's made some interesting films in the past, but I think he outdid himself with this one. And, and uh, it looks like it's on its way to getting some Oscar love, maybe. So I hope so. I love Parasite. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I have to see it. Uh, no movie has been discussed more in this last quarter of the year than Parasite. It has caught on, uh, which is encouraging. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, my number three is that that's what we're up to, right? Number three mm -hmm. for me. Uh, here's a sample review from Variety on this movie. Though undeniably gorgeous, it is punishingly long, frequently boring, and woefully engage unengaging at some of its most critical moments. That's an example of a critic that failed to himself engage in the ideas presented in this movie. If the, uh, the Irishman, if you think about the Irishman, <clears throat> that is not directed by the Scorsese of Goodfellas. That's directed by the Scorsese of Silence, which is my number three movie. Silence yeah. is a beautiful meditative movie, much like the Irishman, but uh, even more than the Irishman, it feels like the movie that Scorsese was born to make. Everything he did, all of his... Um, both in crime films and legitimate uh, contemplations of religion, all of those films led him up to silence. And it is a film of the ultimate questions. What is faith? Uh, and, and, and it doesn't answer the, that question, but it considers it for a great length of time. And you see his faith being tested in a variety of ways, uh, you know, foul, sometimes foul ways. And what is it? What is? How far are you willing to go to s stand by what you believe in? Where does that belief come from, and how far can it be tested until it breaks? Um, those are ideas that are, are 
don't need answers. We just need to ask the question. And that's what this movie is. It's a question. Uh, and I think it's just a beautiful piece of work. And if you sit with it, if you're patient with it, if you can live in it and it, 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 it will, it will get into your bloodstream and you will not be able to shake it. Uh, as I was not, uh, I think it's an extraordinary movie. Silence. My number three, Marty, Marty would, would be very pleased with, with your reaction to it because it, it makes pain, suffering and anguish really palpable. Yeah. And yet hardly anybody will go and see it. No. <laughs> and I am not a person of, of, of religious faith. Uh, I'm, I'm not, but I think it can, can apply to any number of tenants that we hold dear in our own oh, lives. Sure. Yeah. And there is, you know, I know a priest that loved the movie and I haven't engaged him in conversation about it yet, but I'm looking forward to that. That's a, which is another thing benefit of the movie. It, it, it provokes conversation. Mm -hmm. uh, if, yeah. if you really delve into its ideas or you could be like the variety guy and ignore them. <laughs> well, to, uh, to do that, <laughs> to do that is to really accept the challenge and it really is not yeah. easy and it's not comfortable and it's not routine. So it makes its demands on you. But these are the movies we love, Tony. Yes. This is why we love movies. We love movies that expect us to come to them, meet them, yes. you know, bring ourselves to them. Well, then I'm not sure yeah. I should follow with my number two pick. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> my number two pick is Pitch Perfect. Hmm. Um, and it does have an established director uh, who is in his 80s. Uh, Midnight in Paris, Woody Allen's film. Oh, too. I thought that you were choosing Pitch Perfect, the movie. No, 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 the skinny guy, the skinny yes. guy. Okay. Hold, hold on a second while I pick my job off the floor there. So. <laughs> <laughs> Midnight in Paris. It's, it's glorious. And I think it, mm. it, 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 it is Woody Allen at his at his most entertaining and unusually positive. Yes, because if, if you think about Woody Allen, he there's nothing after this. There's really no point. Just get by as as well as you can. And I think Midnight in Paris it it it, it fantas it covers a character that fantasizes about the glory days when it was really meant something to be a creative writer. And, and not and, only but, that. How about Owen Wilson is perfect playing Woody Allen? Well, he is, but I, I think what's most important about the movie is what it says. And I think what it says is what if the glory days are now and you're so consumed with the past and not existing in that past that you're missing it. And I thought mm -hmm. what a refreshing message to come from this movie, especially from Woody Allen. Yeah. Yeah, it has a lot to say in the guise of a comedy. Uh, it's, there's a lot on its mind, and um, you know, and it's probably his most accessible film too. Uh, it was very, it was popular, film. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it's amazing to think that when that film came out, I believe it was 2011. You know, he was 
he was kind of back on track and in the good graces. And now he's, he can't even get a film financed in America. So in that amount of time, he's, he's completely gone uh, the other direction, but yeah, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I love, I love Woody Allen, but I honestly think he's, he's made enough. <laughs> I think we have a good representation of who Woody Allen was as an artist after 50 movies, you know? Yeah, that, that's a good, that's anyway. a point. Good point to make. Yes. He needs to enjoy his life. Uh, okay. So Adam, you're number two. My number two is, was my favorite film of 2013. And I just adore this film uh, directed by Alexander Payne, who uh, we all know I'm a big fan of his work. Mm. And this was uh, Nebraska, which uh, stars, of course, Bruce Dern. Uh, it's the story of a, uh, an older gentleman, shall we say, who's in the early stages of dementia, and he's con- he's uh, convinced that he's won the Publishers Clearinghouse uh, sweepstakes, and nobody can convince him otherwise. And so his son, played by Will Forte, takes him on a trip to the Publishers Clearinghouse, uh, the the place where they actually have their offices, too, so he can prove to him that he hasn't won anything. It's just a uh, a scam, and and along the way they they reconnect and visit family and uh, he learns a lot about his father in the process. They, they stop by uh, the, 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 the place where his father grew up and there's a lot of time for reflection. And, and the movie is, is funny in that way that Alexander Payne, uh, he has this unique way of um, it's almost as, as if he, you think he's making fun of the, uh, <laughs> the characters in his, you're not quite sure if he's making fun of these characters right, <laughs> or right. empathetically. He treads that fine line and he does it so well. And I just, and the movie is, is this incredible black and white photography by Kevin Tent, which I adore. Mm-hmm. And every frame of it just completely shines. And in this day and age to get a major studio film, that's made by Paramount, uh, financed and made in black and white is, uh, that's that's a starring pretty amazing. Starring Bruce Dern, starring Bruce yes. Dern and Will Forte. You know. <laughs> yes, yes. He, he, and, he's uh, a very special writer director. I mean, he has he has a. You mentioned Mike White with Brad Status. Uh, there's another mm-hmm. writer director that has a a great voice for character, and uh, generally, I find that uh, uh, the uh, what's his name again? The guy that did uh, <laughs> Alexander Payne. Alexander Payne. Alexander Payne. I lo- I do love him. I love The Descendants. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I like Nebraska just a tiny bit less, but, but it's still, I, I'm crazy about Alexander Payne. Oh yeah. Yeah, I definitely am. And this, of, of the films he's made this decade and he only made three, uh, this, the descendants and, uh, uh, downsizing, which was, uh, definitely, uh, probably the least of all of the films on his resume. But, uh, I just, I thought Nebraska was the strongest thing he did uh, during this decade, uh, for my, for my book anyway. So, uh, yeah, big, big it's my number two. Okay. Okay. My number two, and this is exciting where we only have two hours left. Uh, <laughs> I'm, kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. My number two, I believe is the best documentary of the decade. Uh, I've seen it several times and I think it's such a great macro view of, America, not only since 1994 when OJ killed his wife and Ron Goldman, but decades before in terms of our relationship with to race and how it all culminated in that double homicide. And that's OJ made in America. 
That's my number two. I think in terms of a portrait, it's right there in the title, a portrait of America, who we are, where we came from, where we are today. Uh, I think it can't be beat. I think it takes this sensationalistic murder and it expands it like all great movies do. It, it, it's a ex- expansive kind of ocean of ideas for you to consider. Uh, and it, it, it grows each time I see it. Uh, I love, love this movie. Um, and I can't recommend it enough. I think a lot of people have caught on to it. I mean, if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, they're nonstop five stars, five stars. I mean, the people that see it really do love it. One thing that, that relates to the last decade, this really was the decade where documentaries became significant. And mm. there were an awful lot of documentaries that were great, that were great films. Um, it was also the, the, the decade of indies. I've gotten more requests to review indie films in the last couple of years than I had in my whole career. But I've also seen so many documentaries that I thought were really outstanding motion pictures. So that I, I look back on this as much as anything, the, uh, the, the decade of documentaries. Yeah. Good I point. love document. I love the documentary form, especially when it's done, when it's dominated by ideas and it's, it's just not a collection of talking heads. And then you got to put them all together and weave a narrative when there's an overarching idea, you know, a questioning mm-hmm. of something. Right. And that's, that's OJ made in America for me. I mean, it transcends OJ. It's not this, it's not uh dateline. Yeah. It's about so much more. Uh, Tony, your number, what are we up to? One? Yeah. Number wow. one. Dun, dun, dun. The film of the decade. I'm, <laughs> I, I picked as my number two, Midnight in Paris, because it was light and entertaining. My number one is depressing. Oh, <laughs> I love depressing. When, when Adam picked his list, he made the, the tenth, his tenth choice about a, a, a film that deals with the world was coming to an end. This film is also about the world coming to an end, but it it, it does not have the same spirit as uh, the other film did. The Danish filmmaker Lars von Trier made a film called Melancholia Mm -hmm. with Kirsten Dunst. And it, to me, is extraordinary because if you say that silence makes you think about the, your life, a rogue planet is coming to the earth and going to collide with the earth and destroy all of us. And Kirsten Dunst is, is getting married. And it's, it's an extraordinary multi-dimensional motion picture. Kiefer Sutherland is in it. Um, the um, the Sars God son and and uh, father and son Alexander, uh, the son of Stellan Skarsgård, Charlotte Rampling is in it, Charlotte Gainsborough is in it, and it is depro- depressing, but it's about coping with meaningful the meaning of life. 
yeah. and the meaning of death. And to me, it's a, it's an extraordinary, I, I've used that film, I've used that term too often tonight, but it really is a, uh, a memorable haunting experience. Yeah. And, and as we always say on the show, no great movie is depressing. It's the bad ones. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. That is a good point. Uh, yeah. Melancholia. Uh, yeah. That's a movie that definitely has a lot on, uh, on its mind. And we had a discussion. We did a show on Melancholia, you and I, Tony. No. Did we? No, yeah, I we don't did. think so. Well, I'm so glad you remembered it. But uh, We did. It been- <laughs> <laughs> by, the, by the way, for those people that aren't interested in uh, – Depression and melancholia. You can see Kirsten Dunst in the nude. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, that. it's but not depressing a, to me. Point for my, my number one <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think you just I think you just sold some rentals there. My, <laughs> my, my, my two points. Uh, okay. Oh. Okay, uh, Adam, you're number one, numero uno. Oh, here we go. Well, you mentioned it earlier, and uh, I teased that it was on my list. Phantom Thread, Paul Thomas Anderson's oh, Phantom Thread, just uh, an incredible, incredible piece of filmmaking. Again, it was one of these, and I, I really don't do this very often, uh, return to the theater and see something in a theater during its initial release. That rarely happens, and it ha- it's happened multiple times with the films on this list, <laughs> and this was another one of those instances. Uh just, I thought this was an incredible piece of filmmaking uh, from Paul Thomas Anderson. And uh, I, I mean, I admire parts of The Master. I admire parts of Inherent Vice. But they just kind of, uh, they weren't the Paul Thomas Anderson that I had really fallen for back in the day with uh, There Will Be Blood and Magnolia and all that. And this was kind of a return to form. And uh, it's such a profound movie about the nature of relationships, as you were saying earlier. It's, uh, it's, it's just, it says so much about, um, you know, the power dynamics in relationships. And, and, and then there's the creative process. The, uh, it's, there's, there's a lot of great humor, but it has a lot also to say in, in, both in a funny and serious manner about the creative process. And, um, you know, it's, it's just uh, so well filmed. Uh, the score by Johnny Greenwood, I mean, he's collaborated with Paul Thomas Anderson multiple times, starting with There Will Be Blood, but his score for that film is just gorgeous. I mean, it just mm. gives me uh, goose pimples. Uh, I put it on occasionally and listen to it as I'm taking a walk or something and, uh, oh my God, just incredible. Um, I, I just think he outdid himself with that, with that score. And it just conjures up images of that film when I hear it. And I, I don't know. Yeah. And um, you know, you know what it is? It's, it's this, it's this very austere classical music. And yet there's yes. a, 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 an edge to it. There's this tinge of threat in that oh, score. Yes. And that so perfectly mirrors the movie itself. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. Mm-hmm. It works in tandem, just like you're saying. Uh, just I, I just love Phantom Thread. I can't say enough 
good things about it. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't make my top 10 list of either year. Uh, it came out in 2017, but I didn't see it until 2018. So it was really technically not a 2017 film by the time I saw it. So I really couldn't include it on yeah. my list or else it would have made my top of that year. But uh, I'm finally getting the opportunity to, get, to give it the love that it has in my heart. So uh, here we go. Good. Uh, that's my number one. Yeah, there it is. I feel the love, my friend. I feel it. <laughs> okay. My number one is, of course, anyone that knows me won't be surprised by this. After Earth, the Will Smith, Jaden Smith. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> my number one is, I, I think, a movie that Tony doesn't like. Uh, we just talked about it briefly years ago. Not boy, but I, Not boy. I, I, I still think it's the accomplishment of the decade. The, the One of the all-time great accomplishments, and that is The Tree of Life. Because what this movie does for me is, is, is an impossibility it considers the whole of existence and it, it, it as, as one ongoing saga from the birth of the universe to a Midwestern family in the fifties. Um, it's all one thing. It considers life as both infinite and fleeting. Um, all of these, it's a, it's an existential movie that avoids pretension. At least for me, it does. And I think a, a big way it does that, it's it's a movie of sensation. It's not necessarily a narrative, a, a, a typical narrative movie. It's about sensation. It's about transmitting a feeling of something um, through images, through roaming, roving camera. Um, and it's an approach that Malik has employed in his other movies from this past decade to lesser effect, I think. I think it's got to be when you ride the edge like that as a filmmaker, you risk uh, going over and drowning or soaring. And I think Tree of Life is where he soared the most, where his unique visual style was most complementary to the material. And I think the movie is transporting uh, in a way that no other movie this past decade has been for me. And I've only seen it once. Um and you know, I'm going to see it again, but it's one of those movies where I almost feel it's like something Pauline Kael said years ago, if she adored a movie, she wanted to hang on to that. Uh, and it was a fear of revisiting it and lessening its impact that lives inside of her. And I feel the same way about tree of life. It was so overwhelming when I first saw it and it was, a, it was a totally unique vision um, so that's it. Tree of life. Number oh. one. Well, maybe when you re revisit it, you can see the extended cut that's on the criterion Blu-ray with the extra 50 minutes. So I don't think it needs to be <laughs> yeah. longer. Honestly, <laughs> I, mean, I got it. I, I, under I understood the movie. Uh, yeah. Yes. Right. Oh, Go ahead, I was Adam. just going to say, I, I just finished seeing his uh, latest film, the, uh, a hidden life. And I was quite taken with that. I think it's, uh, he's, kind of getting his mojo back a little bit i think so uh i don't know what can i say i hope so because when it works when it works it works so well uh but it's the kind of it's the kind of knife said she he operates on you know he, and that there's something to be commended uh risking failure um which mm -hmm. in the movies you know that's another thing the movies of today they're all risk adverse that's what yes. the movie business is all about 
So it's so refreshing when somebody really puts their balls out there. Uh, sorry to be so graphic about it, but that's well, the way I, I feel. Actually, actually, you know, I'm, I haven't, I'm really promoted this last year and it didn't do anything for me. Didn't do much for me until the end, but Joker really, really had balls. And there were several films that I think yeah. uh, uh, had some staying power and some creativity that, that really bloomed and, and was bright and, and, and effective. Yeah. And that's why many of the movies that we've discussed on the show, they're examples of that. And that that's not the norm, you know, <laughs> nowadays. Mm hmm. You know, they know how much money they're going to make before they even green light a film. Mm -hmm. They, they, they test it like an insurance adjuster would, you know, that's right. Sadly. Okay. On, on that happy note. <laughs> let, let me say, let me say the one thing, uh, Jamie, I really appreciated your and Adam's love of, of the movies that it really was articulate and convincing and we gave the audience at least three films that they should see, right? I think so, at yeah. the very least. And then uh, we love you. We love you, Tony. We and sure we do. love you for the same reason. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Love you guys. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. And uh, I hope everyone out there enjoyed the show. See you next time.